Professor Jean Williams, author of A History of Women's Football and also uh, the well-titled Kit, colon, Fashioning the Sporting Body, which came out in 2016, and it was followed by Britain's Olympic Woman. But you look at public history, I would love to know more. Obviously, it's outside the scope of this podcast, but Audrey Brown, Margaret Wellington and Pat Smith or Smythe, the horse racer. Smythe. Smythe, uh, the horse rider. So you've been looking at achievements of great women in spite, well, their achievements and also yours, in spite of the treatment of female athletes or because of it? Because these seem like great women. Yeah, I I suppose I wanted to take on one football, uh, whether we like it or not, is a juggernaut. I mean, there's a reason that there's going to be a World Cup in, in Qatar later this year is that the eyes of the world are on football. It's become a kind of total juggernaut sport. sport. So, um, fascinated by, by, by football primarily um, and, and have written about men's football as well as women's football. And then I wanted... To, so, if that's the biggest... If that's arguably the biggest world sport i then wanted to look at the biggest multi sport event in the world which was the olympic games and i was absolutely gobsmacked when team gb was awarded you know the third london olympic games in 2012 and i remember that announcement what was it back in 2005 the day before the bombings yeah and i was thinking do you know what given what i do i should really know um lots about Britain's women Olympians. Who are they? You know, when did they participate? Um, And at that stage in 2005, I thought, you know what, I could name a few, but I I by no means know this story. So I thought, right, let's take on the Olympic Games then. And the Olympic Games is an absolute beast of a topic to try to get your head around and increasingly in the more recent years, the Paralympic Games, because it's so vast in scale and scope and all the rest of it. So it will give you an idea of how much I struggled with that massive topic that the book didn't actually come out till 2014, I think. Um, It was due out in 2012 and I just didn't make it and um, so it came out in 2014. And, And indeed it the stories are fantastic. So Chatty Cooper in 1900 in the Paris Olympic Games, she didn't win the first gold medal for Britain because gold medals were not awarded in mm. Paris. But she received a financial reward and she also received a, a little trinket. And she was partially deaf. So I was fascinated by the fact that a lot of these Olympians Olympians, we talk about Olympic and Paralympic history, but hidden within the Olympic history, there is quite a lot of disability within that whole story. And I wanted to integrate the, uh, you know, what academics would call intersectional politics. And what I mean by that is that there are women of different classes, there were women of women of different races and different um, ethnic heritages uh, within the Team GB story. There are a variety of different women um, and I just wanted to represent that variety. And initially when I started out, one of my senior male colleagues said, oh, he looked at the proposal that I got and he said, oh, I think that's probably a paper rather than a book, Gene. And, um, you know, he, 
2016, it was a book that I had to finish around 1984 because I had just run out of, it stands at 140,000 words and I'd run out of um, energy, enthusiasm and um, the publisher's patience. So really it needs a volume two, but I don't know at the moment whether I've got the uh, wherewithal to write that. Uh, well, someone sitting in a, an academic um master's thesis is going to think about doing that for a PhD post-1984 Olympic woman yeah. in the modern era um and of course yeah. it was I'm in Watford and I'm not far from Stoke Mandeville the place yeah. where the Paralympic Games were invented so I would love to yeah. I'd love to read especially a Paralympics history um because we make big strides in that well that uh, anecdote about that horribly recidivist academic paints this next question in a fun light when will all these old attitudes finally, finally fade? Because they are kind of taught or received um, questions. For instance, in this reunion BBC discussion show, uh, the question, actually, you better, do you remember this? Sylvia Gore was asked a particular question by, um, uh, by the journalist. You remember? I'm sorry, I don't remember that. No, it was uh, Sylvia Gore. Are you married? Not, not what do you, what position do you play? How did you prepare for the game? Do you have a husband? Um, because it was so paternalistic, but now post-Equality Act, you cannot by law discriminate uh, by virtue of sex or sexual discrimination act. So all these old aspects and old opinions, they must die out because the younger generation are seeing that there are certain things that you have to do, certain things you don't do. Um, and that is only good. Uh, for boosting the uh, the esteem of the women's game. Yeah, OK, I, I accept your broad point. Yes, I, I agree with you. The dinosaurs did eventually die out. We know that as a, as a historical fact. The dinosaurs, unfortunately, are still in control of world sport. Look at them, look at any governing body, and we don't have... It's very rare. Sorry, I can't. I can't say that we don't have um, in certain sports like uh, netball and gymnastics. We we might have a preponderance of, of women on the governing body, but but most governing bodies of sport have a problem with the gender diversity of their governing body. And while they continue to have those problems, and I do governance indexes for um, a variety of organizations and I work with governing bodies around their own lack of diversity and have to have difficult conversations about things like white male privilege to to white males who are mainly over 60 who get very terribly terribly huffy about the whole thing Um, and indeed um, if you try to take the word uh, man out of chair um, again, they, it, it more or less sends them into a, a meltdown. So, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. So um, the dinosaurs will eventually die out. Again, I'm not one for a crystal ball. I can't tell you how quickly the dinosaurs in sport are going to die out. But we do have a thing within academia which is called the replication of oligarchies. And what we mean by that is that there is a tendency within um, sports governing bodies and within world sport and you find it within a lot of professions indeed Uh, we've got a problem with 
with the number of female surgeons, for example, that, that surgery tends to be mainly a male profession. So what, what tends to happen in that, those situations is that men will appoint successors who they think are most like them. So they tend to appoint younger, mainly white males who have similar views to themselves. So there are processes by which these views are actually defended and and there is a successor that, that's appointed who will continue more in the same vein rather than change. What can happen, thankfully, as, as has happened within rowing, is that women who have been successful rowers have gone on to other high-profile careers and then they, they tend to come back within within rowing and are able to some extent to change the subculture and the governing body of attitudes. So change is incremental and slow and it's contested. Um, I'm not hugely optimistic for the next 20 years, um, but perhaps going forward past that, then, you know, we will see some radical change. I'd love to see the first female um, president of FIFA. FIFA, before 1904, has never had a female president. Considering, you know, that Britain's had a female prime minister before FIFA gets a female president, I think that tells you something. Mm -hmm. IOC's never had a female president, and that's been going around since uh, it was formed in 1894. So there are real problems in world sport and the attitudes that it has, not just to women, but to other questions around diversity and inclusion. I quite flippantly say it would be good just to give women 1,000 years uh, to hold all the power and all the cards. But that I am in seriousness, I think it would work. And one of those um, administrators that you alluded to, Cathy Granger, her picture was all over the sports department of Edinburgh University, one of the most famous graduates a gold medal winning graduate. I know she's done a lot for, if not the British Olympics and UK athletics. And I've, I know Baroness Sue Campbell is, is she the chair of the women's FA? No, she she's head of women's football at the FA. Right. There's no women's FA anymore. Yes, because it was absorbed into the men's yeah. FA, uh, which is now yeah. called the English FA. They're not the FA, they're the English FA, which is quite right. Um, what I tend to do... <laughs> Um, with football library guests is that I give them a library card. Evidently, you would have had several library cards over the years. But if you were to have a figure from women's football, perhaps one you've written about in the history of women's football, uh, a history of women's football, but the book, History of Women's Football, whom would you choose beyond all other female sportswomen as the person upon your library card represented in silhouette or pictograph? Crikey, that's a difficult one. Oh, do you know what? I'm going to go Marta. Marta de Silva. Um, could have been Formiga, um, who's recently been recently retired. Yes. Um, but, but Marta de Silva. So, um, and not only does she play football in that kind of joyful manner, you know, what, whatever you think of the, uh, the life of... Um, Diego Maradona and whatever you think of the life of Pelé and those kind of um, male players. The style of play of Marta is just absolutely joyful. And yet she was in the position in 2019 as, you know, she's been world player more, well, as many times or, or 
if not more times than um, sorry Cristiano Ronaldo and um, Lionel Messi. But in 2019, she could not get a boot sponsor for the Women's World Cup. And so you'll have seen her on telly in a garish lipstick colour, different one every match. And the reason for that is that she could only get a cosmetics company to sponsor her. So when the greatest, um, what I think is the, has been the greatest female player in the world, is treated like that as recently as that, then... Um, I'm going to put my vote in for Marta. That is a very sensible choice. And that means that I have to induct Marta, uh, Ultimate Football Heroes by Charlotte Brown, which is aimed at kids. But she was a kid when she started off. I know that uh, Kieran Tavum wrote about Marta in his book. Uh, Jeff Kasoulis, is that his name? Which is the history of the Women's World Cup. And um, comes across really well. Just a girl who loved the game in the place where they express the game most beautifully. Marta, who's still playing? I think it was her last World Cup, but she's still kicking. Yeah, she, yeah she's, still, she's still playing. And, and the other thing is, you know, that just in all seriousness, that, that Marta is an LGBTQ plus icon who's had to move to the US, um, oh. not only for opportunities to play club football at the highest level and to keep herself fit, but also for, for aspects of personal safety. Um, and it's not to be underestimated the number of LGBTQ plus players in elite women's football who are under serious threat as we as we speak. Um, and of course, we've got the very recent thing around Afghan Afghanistan, where a lot of the women's national team have had to be um, got out of the country yeah. and, and moved to to other places because if the Taliban. Um, you know, had got hold of them for playing football, then their lives would have been very un- unpleasant, if not foreshortened. So, you know, let's not be glib about the status of women's football and what women in football face around the world. Um, there are some real challenges. And, and if one of the world's most elite footballers who's been acknowledged by FIFA to be one of the greatest still has those difficulties today. It shows us how very far we still have got to go um, in in anything approaching equity. Yeah, so again, to refer to the first half, parity comes in lots of different forms. One of the things I didn't like about the World Cup uh, in 2019, which I watched with a good friend from Zimbabwe, and I was telling her what was going on and why England are one of the best teams. But I felt so sorry for Lee Alexander. Uh, And I've spoken to Stephen Lawther, whose book Arrival deals with the history of Scottish football from the great Elsie Cook and the great Rose Riley onwards. Where are the statues at Hamden? Just the nature... Scotland were winning 3-1. Lee saved the penalty. It went in and Scotland went out of the tournament because of the guinea piggery, which is not a word, but it is now. Um, the go that went on at that tournament. Please, this summer, the Euros are better than the World Cup in terms of the refereeing and the general palaver, so we can focus on the football. Well, uh, what I would question is, why was Women's World Cup, when VAR has not been extensively trialled in women's club football, and people are arguing at present that it's uh, financially prohibitive to have it as such why was it trialled at a women's world cup tournament because it made a nonsense of both var 
and you know the, the referees' decisions because they hadn't been trained in using VAR before it was used as a tournament. This is not new for FIFA to to mess around with the format of Women's World Cup. Uh, Canada was played on uh, artificial turf. Yeah. That, that, that is just a constant. Uh, of, of undermining the women's game and they wouldn't dare have t- trialled VAR in Qatar for instance on top of all the other furore that there's going to be so um, yes I quite agree with you the officials will be better rehearsed because they've been given time to get training in it and, and everybody's more experienced with VAR but equally I'll come back at you and say you know the premiership matches that we watched over the last couple of weekends were all marred in VAR controversy um, depending on you know whether you're a Man City fan or not has VAR solved the problem isn't the problem really the disparity between the elite preparation of the athletes and the increasing professionalisation of the officials, which is nevertheless not at the same stage of development, and therefore as the athletes become more finely attuned with their movements, it becomes ever harder to referee in the moment, um, and VAR has become just one tool by which that's been done. There are two types of football, the one we like and the one played at elite levels and at World Cups. And it's a real fish. And over the last two years, I've spoken to fans from so many clubs and so many countries. And I'm, I'm in agreement with Gareth Southgate and others. The game, the, the ball is round, you kick it in the goal. Great. Everything else, nonsense. And that includes the paucity of referees. But then again, uh, oh, although we should also mention that finally, belatedly, her name is Rebecca Welch, I think, the referee. Yeah, it's a number of female refs now, yeah. Who are refereeing in the men's game, which is brilliant. Again, parity of esteem. Um, Here's a theory that I've come up with about 40 minutes ago. 1921, uh, women were banned um, from playing football for 50 years. Was it Emmeline Pankhurst's fault? I can explain if you need me to. Well, I don't know that she ever kicked a ball, but go on. Because of the success of the suffragettes in the 1910s, the the kind of not the landed gentry but the people in power needed to put the woman down somehow okay we've given universal suffrage over the age of whatever it was 25 i think initially we need to level them up now we need to do something bad so let's take away the football that looks like it's going to usurp the post-war love of men's soccer is there anything in that or do you think it was it would have happened anyway without universal suffrage being given yeah really really difficult to say. I mean, universal suffrage wasn't given. It was only for women who own property over the age of 30. So the thing that's often a misperception about what happened in the representation of the People Act in 1918 is that actually more working class men became enfranchised than women. Um, And that's often something that's not acknowledged or or becomes a distraction. You could argue that to some extent, that Emmeline Pankhurst certainly did dig up cricket pitches in targeted sport. But also the women WSPU um, had their own jiu-jitsu squads and they took part in sports as a form of um, patriotic activity. Um, So it's really difficult to draw a neat line to say that. What we can say is that 
women having moved into more highly paid occupations, such as munitions work, once the war was won, were put into uninsured trades and had to retrain. And obviously men went back into more of the traditional roles that they had. And so the likes of Dickers um, had to retrain as nurses or as bus conductors or, or so forth. And women were, were treated very badly. That is certainly very true. Bearing in mind that something like a million young men were killed during World War One, something like 1.5 million young women never married and therefore had to work and, you know, sustain themselves and, and look after themselves. So it's a really complicated situation. What I don't subscribe to is the idea that men's football was a second draw during World War One. I've never suggested that, and I don't subscribe to that view, which is that men's football continued as a professional entertainment, including the football league, but it was more regionalised than it had been before. And... You know, wasn't you didn't have a national first division and a national second division. What happened in 1921 is that the football league expanded to a third division south and a third division north, not effectively doubling the football league, but certainly growing it. And it's clear that the football clubs that were part of the football league wanted to protect any revenue streams that there were for their football league. And I think that's a big impetus to, to, to ban women, not as such, but from the grounds of Stamford Bridge and you know Newcastle United and Everton and all the rest of it. But there were two separate entities. The football league was in charge of restructuring the pyramid. And, oh, and the Football Association were the ones who banned it. So, is that right? And then the FA and the Football League, between them, must have decided, given your evidence. Yes. They if, but if you think about it logically, even clubs, affili- even clubs of the Football League had to be affiliated to the FA. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, so it was a blanket ban on all grounds, both the professional grounds that the women's teams had used to raise raise large revenues and also so that the women's teams couldn't, say, go to, you know, Watford or whatever and um, just use the little local grounds. It was a blanket ban on football grounds affiliated to the Football Association and indeed they extended it. So the women initially played on cricket and rugby grounds and because the FA got friends in the football Football, rugby football union and, and rugby football league and in cricket, you know, it, eventually the, the ban spread. And that's what's made women's football look unspectacular, that people have forgotten, because the ban was in place for 50 years, people have forgotten that uh, women played on large grounds to which large paying groups of paying spectators would attend week in, week out. And and that's why I always say we're not necessarily making progress. The men who went along to support in 1920-21 um, were just ordinary guys. They were working-class guys who were enormously proud of watching women from their local sides play football. And these were in large numbers, like up to 50,000. We're not there yet with women's club football because working-class men today have the opinion that um, women's football is a second-rate 
product and they have that opinion because of the Football Association. Yeah, and also they may not have seen it. I've been to Wembley several times because it's down the road, but I went to see a couple of women's FA Cup finals. Not the best games, um, but I was... And also when I went the other week to see England play Northern Ireland, once the floodgates opened, it all came. It took an hour, but eventually it came. Um, But it can only help the professional footballer or even the semi-professional football. I mean, less so if you're Latvian and you get tanked 20-0. I think that's a bit of a, a bum steer. But I should end by saying that, that the history of women's football is out now on Pen and Sword. Uh, you can get it online or on Amazon, I think. Yeah, online on Amazon. I think it's out um, by ebook, and it should be about a year before it comes out. I think in paperback. Jolly good. I will. I'll bear that in mind because it will go on the shelves of the football library next to a little. Um, smorgasbord of books. I don't know what the collective noun is. A shelf of a shelf. A shelf of books. Uh, on the, a sh- yeah. Your shelfie must be very impressive. I know I've got a library's worth of books, but um, you you, re- you make reference to books around you. Is there one that you cherish uh, in general? Not the most cherished, but is there just one that you've picked up along the way that changed your research path or just your opinion on something? Um, what? Uh, academic book uh, football in general I know that it's got aspects of chauvinism in it and um, is very much as they say of its time but I'm still a huge fan of Arthur Hotcraft's The Football Man correct answer um, because I I love his writing about George Best which is the way in which he writes about George Best shows that kind of when you become that famous and you have fans George was almost kind of powerless to manage that relationship because people have already kind of projected their own hopes and fears and all the rest of it onto you. So I think as an insight into uh, stardom, if you like, and fandom uh, and all of that, I think it's a brilliant um, insight and a beautiful piece of writing. Yeah, well, my favourite writer is Michael Calvin and Michael used that as a Bible um, so all of his books are imbued with Hopcraftism. And I, I actually, over the last two years, I found out that there are two types of football journalism. There's Hopcraft, Calvin style, which is getting in the trenches. And then there's laptop journalism or library journalism, which is um, sitting on a laptop and just going, or in a library and going through loads of books. So I wonder if your book, Professor Jean Williams, um, is that mix of the Hopcraft and the Wilson, in that you've done some field research and some reading, and you've come up with, I imagine it will be the set text on women's football. I, I would very much say I have lived through the trenches, so I I played not to a very high standard, as it, it says on the book cover. Uh, I wasn't particularly good, but I was enthusiastic. I've done my coaching badges. I've chaired the East Midlands League. Um, I've been a, um, a treasurer of a league um you know, I've carted people around in cars to various games. I've done tournaments. And equally, I've had the great good fortune to travel the world and, you know, see what women's football is like in US colleges and in Namibia and in China and wherever. So mine's not really laptop journalism. It's, it is it is more the school of hard knocks and, and talking to people. And, and the reason why I think my 
contribution is unique. And I think a game for rough girls was unique and is the set text is that I interviewed people and used oral histories because you won't find the history of women's football in the archive. It's not in the FA archives for obvious reasons, it's not in the FIFA archives for obvious reasons, and it's not in the UEFA archives um, for the same reasons. And I've looked in all those places. So the only way that you will really know about the history of women's football is talking to the women who played. And that's the basis of my um, research, and that's who I hope it speaks to. Will you get invited when you get all these old home nations players, old as in from the past, not as in kind of pensionable age, but they will all be invited by the English FA and by all the um, home nations FAs to the tournament this summer. So I hope you'll go along, uh, if not as a guest of Carrie Dunn um, for this summer. So do you hope to go to a lot of matches? I hope to go to a lot of matches because I'm the um, I'm the historian of the heritage project that's around the women's euros so oh, i'll be writing good. i'll be writing content for each of the 10 hosts host stadia and each of the eight host cities um and that work is already ongoing now and through that process it's absolutely fascinating and it, it's it's enormously helpful to me as well as me being helpful to the host cities because we're unearthing news stories all the time, such as the the story of when women first played at Wembley and how they've played at Wembley and who they were and what the timeline is. So we're uncovering new research all the time. And will those be in the match day programmes or will there be an accompanying glossy book? There will be physical exhibitions at each at each venue wow. that you can that fans can go to, there will be some mini exhibitions. Certainly there's going to be quite a big exhibition in Brighton. Uh, There'll be a small exhibition at Wembley Civic Centre. There'll be something up at National Football Museum. Um, There should be loads of heritage stuff and um, this should be incorporated into the fan zones. Well, there's no escape from your work. I think this year you are, you are like the Ed Sheeran of women's football criticism. You're everywhere and you'd have to be kind of in a rock to avoid it. But this is, this is going to be a great summer and a great year and a great decade uh, for women's football. And your history is essential, essential. And I hope many people read it. Certainly more than 20 people read the academic books that you do. Yeah. Fab. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Thank you. It's very kind of you to say so. No, well, thank you for your time and uh, for taking a break from all that heritage stuff. And, I'll, if I don't come down to Brighton, I'll certainly go to Wembley. Hope to meet you there, then. Just like the library, just like the library.